0: Hello, I'm Evan Novi Williams. Usually accompanied by Michael Barr and Scott Sashnick, but both of them are off today, so we've done one better. We've got Ira Budway, Bloomberg Businessweek reporter. Uh, Ira, thanks for pitch hitting with us.
1: No problem. Thank you for doing this.
0: And so let's talk about you know the biggest stories in the sports world right now, and and the one I want to lead off with, Michael Avenatti and Nike. Uh, for folks who who don't know, and Michael Avenatti is now in part of an extortion lawsuit. You know he's been charged with extorting the company, and as a result. You know, we're getting a lot of discovery in this lawsuit and a lot of the things point to Nike potentially paying high school basketball players. Zion Williamson, one of the names that, that's that been thrown around, Romeo Langford, another one. Ira, do you feel deja vu here? I feel like, you know, it's, it's the third straight year that we've been talking about legal discovery and a big shoe company paying uh, young basketball players.
1: Yeah, I think it's going to keep happening, and I actually think Avenatti looked at the Adidas, uh, Im, you know, implicated in that federal probe, and said, "Hey, why not pull Nike into this?" Or at least that's one possible interpretation of, of what's going on here. So, and I think as long as we have the, the system that we do have, uh, where these uh, kids are not allowed to reap any benefits, uh, really directly, then then this is there's a gray market or black market, and and there's going to be constant uh, every year. We're going to hear it.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that the NCAA kind of always seems to be in the crosshairs when we have these discussions. The The information that dropped last week in, in federal court, you know, it, these are kids that are high schoolers, right? We're talking about Zion Williamson and Romeo Langford when they're playing AAU basketball. And, you know, the, the, third, the third person reportedly a, a seventh grader, right, a 13-year-old basketball player. Uh, So it does make me wonder if, you know, you know, the the NCAA and and, and the fact that college basketball players aren't compensated beyond their scholarships, uh, if this also needs to trickle down even below that, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you look at if this is all working properly, right, these kids on these elite youth teams are going to get a few shoes and some travel, you know, paid for while their coaches get tens of thousands of dollars on the up and up, from uh, Nike and the other athletic apparel companies, everybody knows along the way that kids in junior high, high school, they wear what they see their friends wearing, what the, what the best player on the on the AAU team, on the high school team is wearing. So that's valuable to these companies. Kids get nothing. Then they're supposed to wait at least a year, go to college, while their coaches get paid big money by apparel companies, and why the schools get big money from the apparel companies, and while the NCAA gets you know big money, TV money, and they get nothing. And then when they're done with a year then they can finally go cash in. And I think if you look at that, you think, well, this is how is this supposed to work? You know, how are we not supposed to have illegal channeling of money in this situation? But what I wonder watching all of this is, is what is the best possible outcome for Nike at this point?
0: Mm.
1: Like, how do, how do they make this? end? Uh, you know, do they think Avnati is just going to go quietly? It doesn't seem to be his way. Like, how, what do you think for them is the ideal outcome?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, this is, again, the the strange part about this is that it's all coming out of an extortion lawsuit. You know, Navinati right. has been essentially accused by federal prosecutors of trying to extort Nike and, and, and he has said that he was actually right operating as an attorney uh, for a client right. of his who was an AAU coach. Um, the other federal investigation, the one that sent or it, it charged a number of Adidas employees and, and they were given jail sentences, which they're now appealing, but but that federal probe is still ongoing theoretically. So I think there's still a question as to whether or not information that maybe comes in this lawsuit could eventually trickle its way over into that federal probe. Um, but you know, right now the, the people in in, in these disclosures, these Nike employees, they have not been fired yet. They're still employed and there are probably some, some legal reasons for that as well. Um, but I also want, I mean, is there, I'm not sure if the public really cares about this any, I mean, I think there's among people who follow college basketball, there is now kind of an assumption that there is money changing hands under the table between, Shoe companies and college coaches and AAU coaches and parents and uncles and representatives. Um, it seems as though there's almost fatigue on this story, which is why I think you're not seeing it covered as much.
1: Yeah, I think that is the truth about this. That that ultimately fans either think that you know what's wrong with this? Why can't these kids get paid? Or they think I don't care. It's wrong, but it doesn't bother me. You know. Uh, and so in the end, I think for the NCAA, for Nike. This can just go on at a low level, and it's a kind of a cost of doing business, you know, and, and they'll deal with it because uh, what people really care about is who, who is the next Zion Williamson uh,
0: mm-hmm. and, and
1: watching him play uh, and and hopefully, you know, in their shoes. Uh, so I think they can definitely live with it, but it is interesting that you could have the feds going after Avenatti for, for extorting Nike and then using information that comes out of that to go after Nike for what he's extorting them over. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And and there will be there will be a lot more coming out of this, I'm sure, uh, in the next couple of months. Let's move on in in, in business week this week issue on stands. uh, You have an article about The Athletic, the startup sports coverage website. Give us a sense. I mean, everybody loves to talk about The Athletic. There's a lot of speculation about their business model, whether it's sustainable, whether it is bound to fail in a year or two. From your reporting, how healthy is The Athletic's business model?
1: I mean, if you look at their growth, right, so they're now up to 600,000 subscribers, uh, which really is a considerable number in the world of digital media subscriptions. All Everybody who's in the millions is, for the most part, you're talking about New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, really well-known old publications. So mm-hmm. that's an impressive achievement. And I think it takes them out of the question of, like, whether this is going to just collapse any minute. I um, mean, if they can be taken at their word that they get their different markets to profitability within 6 to 12 months – uh, then uh, I think the question now is not, can this survive? The question is, like, what scale? Uh, and I think, you know, if they can grow to, say, three or four or five times what they are now and have even slim losses, uh, then that's a business somebody might want to buy or slim slim profits. Um, if they can get to 10, 20 times what they are now, even, again, with losses, uh, you know, as long as they're not huge, uh, that's a company that maybe IPOs. I mean, you look at companies... Mm. Netflix, Amazon, Uber, a lot of these companies, they get all the way to public markets without being profitable or with routinely showing losses. So um, I think that, you know, it's just a question of the scale uh, that it's going to reach to my mind at this point and not a question of of whether this is like another national sports daily where it's just going to explode someday.
0: The the thing I find so compelling about The Athletic is that it's it's really a test for for pay-for-content distribution model way beyond just sports, right? I mean, I, I would think every major media company in the, in the country is looking at the athletic in some capacity and using it as a litmus test for how willing people are willing to pay for written content. If the content is good enough.
1: Right. And I think that is one of the questions is whether, how peculiar are sports? I mean, you know, you talk to people and they say, look, the, the tribalism around sports, the passion around sports, people's willingness as diehard fans, to pay for information that they can't get elsewhere about their favorite team is maybe different than your willingness to, you know, pay to, to uh, for a great read that you know about a profile of somebody who you, you, you might see, have seen in the news. I think those are two different propositions. But I think you're right that uh, other companies are already thinking about and are going to try as startups to move to this model where you're not dependent on ads. You don't have to always try to get the biggest possible traffic or go viral and you're not dependent on Facebook tweaking its algorithm that, you know, totally change the state of your business uh, Mm -hmm. where where you're dependent on a direct relationship with your readers and you know that they care a little bit already, right? That they're interested in what you have and are invested in what you have because they've shown that by – by, by paying for a subscription, so I do think a lot of people are watching the Athletic and trying to figure out whether there's uh, broader lessons here.
0: One of the thing, one of the numbers that stuck out in reading your piece, the retention rate. I mean, the, as some people will know, a lot of the people that signed up for the Athletic originally were doing so on kind of heavily discounted uh, early uh, early deals. Um, and and one of the main questions that I had, I've always had, was when when those discount rates expire, how many people are willing to pay the full rate moving forward? Um, and, and what you reported is that eighty percent, you know, eighty percent of people re up for the next year or the next month, regardless of whether they were paying full freight before or whether they were on a discount. Uh, is that a number that is heartening for for the athletic? Is that a number that is they think they can improve on? Kind of how how did they approach that eighty percent number?
1: I mean that number, from all I can gather, is high, and you know, by industry standards, there isn't, a, there aren't a ton of data points to compare them to. But uh, there's a place called the Lenfest Institute for Journalism that looks at sort of what are the future models for newspapers and journalism, and and they estimate that usually for newspapers, which are typically, you know, maybe at different price points and different size markets, but they only they see churn of like a year over year, like half of their people leave uh and that's frequently you know with a huge jump from a tease rate to a full full rate uh and so 80% is high that one of the investment bankers that backs one of the venture capital companies that backs um the athletics said they've never seen retention at this height at this scale mm. the athletics said that you know this is their largest cohorts are coming through now and they're re-upping and i think one of the things that uh, the Athletic has going for it is that the two guys who started it, Adam Hansman and Alex Mather, they came from Strava, which is a subscription-based company for like elite cyclists and runners to track their runs. It's sort of a social network and tracking thing, but they understand that model, and they understand. So one of the things they do is they do have these teaser rates where you you can pay less for a while, but they also have free trials that expire, and then you come in on on the full rate. And so basically, they've been able to get $64 on average, from a year from from their subscribers, even though the cheapest way with a full boat subscription is $60 annual rate. But they get more than that because there are enough people who are doing monthly subscriptions, which are $10 a month, that they're actually coming in above 60 You know, from every customer. So I think they really know their business on that side in terms of finding customers, retaining customers, and handling churn.
0: Speaking of retaining customers, let's get to our third uh, our third topic. Uh, an interesting one, actually, out which has a kind of a, a sinister subplot. But a couple weeks ago, at an English soccer match in in Hull, uh, a soccer fan was essentially asked to leave a game at halftime. Because he had been texting on his phone and they were they, they were curious about what he had been texting. Uh, he didn't actually end up leaving, but it caused kind of a stir in England. Um, and the reason he was, you know, wh- the reason why security was suspicious of him is that. There is, and I know you've written about this before, um, there is a tendency for you know sports betting syndicates or sports bettors to have people in the stands at sporting events who are sending information as soon as it happens so that it can maybe beat the betting feed wherever their friend, their colleague is sitting so that they can maybe make a little money real quick before the, the markets adjust. Um, what did you think when you read this story?
1: I mean, I think this is a whole fascinating world. And maybe not even just trying to front-run the markets, right, but it also just might be somebody trying to get a a data feed for settling up bets and they don't want to pay for the official data. You've reported a lot on, uh, you know, these companies like Sport Radar who just did their deal with the NFL for official data. Sort of what are the the alternatives if you don't want to use official data if you're a betting operator, right? And one of them is spotters, but I assume – When they make these deals, when, you know, Sport Radar makes a deal with the NFL, that part of that is that the league is going to take it upon itself to try to police that spotting. I don't know if that's written into these, but I would guess it is. Uh, And and then if you're a a better, you know, how is your bet being settled? Is it by a spotter? Because I think we've all been in at a game and suddenly realized we're not sure, we couldn't see what was going on, or we got distracted, or it's unclear what's happened. Like, are your bets being settled up by somebody just sitting there trying to punch in the info? I think this is a world that most people never even consider existing, even if you are a regular bettor. It's 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 a wild uh situation.
0: And that argument right there, I think, is exactly the argument that Major League Baseball and the NBA are making here in the U.S. right now as they try to compel... Sportsbook operators, whether it's FanDuel or DraftKings or William Hill, to pay for their official data. You know this is the alternative that they are kind of pitching, right? The, the, those those the people that aren't using official data are either getting it off of a, the fastest TV stream or radio stream they can find, or there's Ira sitting in the stands with his phone out, uh, saying, you know, corner kick for Manchester United, or you know, you know, penalty on uh, on Rashford, you know, et cetera. Um, I do wonder. I mean, there is. I've seen estimates that there are at least twenty, maybe twenty or more people at every soccer game. Fans in the stands are, are people who are relaying called court sighting, as you said, or spotters who are doing this at every at every English football game. That's a that's a crazy number to me. I think that's that that's really interesting. And I also wonder how. I mean, clearly Hull messed this one up, right? It seems like this fan was just texting his girlfriend or maybe telling you know a buddy what was going on at the game. Um, but you can't. You can't go up to every fan who has who's got their nose in their phone for the first half and ask them what they're texting and ask them to leave. How do you even go about policing this?
1: Right. And I mean, I was surprised that it would even be possible to just be a text over some cell network, you know, which are notoriously bad in, in crowded stadiums. Uh, that you could even try to do this, right? Would that actually be faster than than TV or whatever the official data feed is? The, you know, trying to type uh, and send it out. Like I assumed that spotters had to have sort of specialized software where they're just tapping a button for each thing, and that they've trained how to do that. This was not a thing that you could just do by texting quickly. Um, but I guess they're, you know, if the security guards thought so, then they must have in the past uh, run into this with people, tr- you know, trying to do this kind of court sighting at their matches.
0: Yeah, I mean I can't I can't wait until this is something that happens at an NFL game or an NBA right. game and and this I think is I think it there's a good chance that it will. Where someone might get kicked out if they are, in fact, doing this, and 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 two, you know, this is a to me a good example of kind of the other ancillary side effects that you may see as sports betting becomes a bigger deal in the U.S. and becomes kind of more normalized. That you know th- these are now things that, that people in venues need to worry about. Whereas you know last year at NBA games, it was probably not something that was really top of mind for for NBA teams.
1: Right. And I think it's driven, like you said, by the by the companies, the data companies. This is what differentiates them. They have this live speed and accuracy and potentially also, you know, more data they can get that no spotter could. You know, if the, if the players are wearing tracking equipment, then that allows them to potentially move that data into betting markets. And this is what they need to to be able to charge a lot of money for this information.
0: That's Ira Boudwe, Business Week reporter. Ira, you got to be careful if you do too well on this thing. We're going to have you back more.
1: All right. <laughs> I'll, I'll take that to heart.
0: <laughs> thanks. Thanks for joining us. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports Podcast. I'm Evan Novi williams along with Ira Boudwey, filling in for Michael Barr and Scott Soschnick. We're here each and every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday, exploring the world of money and sports. Join us again at the end of the week when we speak with Michael Schwimmer, former MLB pitcher, who's got a business investing in baseball players and a business selling sports betting picks. And download the show wherever you get your podcasts.